0: I have foggy memories, but I, I I remember those memories. I remember loving the discipline that and the. And the- the smell of the dressing room where you put your ballet slippers on and and the feel of that smooth worn out wood bench and I can picture it, to, it clearly in my mind what the studio looked like and what my, my ballet teacher uh, who taught me all the way through high school same teacher uh, you know what she looked like she wore bracelets and and she wore a lot of makeup and I thought she was so beautiful and she You know, she was a grown-up, so she got to wear the ballet skirt, and Uh I got to wear the tights and the leotard, because I was the student.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Are you a good dancer? I'm not, so I've always marveled at the dancing in the Shadowbox Live shows. Shadowbox Live is the largest resident theater company in the United States, and it's a real gem in the art scene of my hometown, Columbus, Ohio. Their troupe creates original works blending music, dance, and sketch comedy, and puts on some 400 shows every year. The storylines in their shows are illustrated by dances of every imaginable genre, and all are the products of the creative genius of my guest today, Katie Seneca. Katie started dance lessons at age three and created her first show when she was all of eight years old, a summer variety show the neighborhood kids performed each year in her parents' garage. She has an amazing ability to take a story from literature, find the human element in it, and bring it to life on the modern stage in wonderfully evocative dances. You'll hear today how she works that magic and how her work on the stage informs life at large. Well, I'm joined today by an absolutely delightful woman I've had the pleasure of watching perform on a number of occasions with the Shadowbox Live Company here in Columbus. Katie Seneca is a master of all things, as far as this geologist can tell. Choreographs, (laughs) dances, sings, does sketch comedy, so welcome, Katie. Thank you. Glad to be here on this snowy, cold morning. <laughs> yes, for those not fortunate enough to be living in the Midwest of the United States right now, uh, we're both in Columbus, Ohio, or thereabouts, and a big winter storm is still blowing through as we speak with you know, minus 20-something wind chills. So it's the perfect day <laughs> to stay inside and, and talk with a friend on on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> so as I warned you before we got started here, I, I always do love to start these conversations, these explorations, by going back and painting the picture of who my guest was as a young child, you know, where they grew up, what kind of family. Tell me about Katie Seneca at age five or six or seven. <laughs>
0: well, uh, I grew up in uh, suburbs of of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, North Olmsted specifically. So, um, you know, right. Smack in the middle of middle class, yeah. uh, suburban life. I'm a, I'm a cradle Catholic. That that what does that family, mean? That means you know you your whole family's Catholic. You you come out of the womb Catholic. <laughs> Rosary beads in hand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you go pretty much straight to church and you stay in uh, Catholic school all the way through. Everything except kindergarten for me was all in the same school system, all Catholic school system in Cleveland. And I actually grew up right behind the church that I, you know, attended my whole life. That said, you know, it doesn't make it sound like I'm sort of kind of a devout Catholic, I, I'm actually not. I'm just kind of most cradle Catholics kind of go on muscle memory. <laughs> 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 but that certainly affected the holidays we celebrated and things like that. What did your parents do? Uh, my father worked for Cardinal Federal Savings and Loan. He was a building appraiser, started out with appraising homes, and was in just the most perfect place and time for this huge commercial boon that happened in America. During the 80s, uh-huh. and so he was able to transition to commercial appraisals for the for the company, traveled quite a bit, did giant buildings in Houston and Dallas and wow. out in Seattle, did that. And then, of course, everything tanked and went back to doing houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Went back to doing houses for, for a little bit. Um, did move uh, away from Cardinal Federal Savings and Loan and took a few uh, of his colleagues with him. And they did open their own business for a, a few years. Really had a really nice, successful appraisal business in times when the times were appropriate for that. And then once things tanked, his partners moved on and he just sort of floated along a little bit on that. He did die from a brain tumor in 1995. So uh, once he was diagnosed with that in 94, I guess it was early 95, he he was only diagnosed and lived 10 months. It was very brief, oh, wow. but that was pretty much the end of the business. Obviously he just yeah. kind of packed it up and said, okay, let's just live these last, these last months while we can. My mom Had a lot of different sort of interesting employment. Uh, She did not work a full-time job. She was a stay-at-home mom who kept herself busy with throw-off projects from her sister, my Aunt Dorothy who at the time worked for Pendant Publishing. So there was a lot of things like mailings and envelope stuffing and so, you know, while us kids were around and she was busy making breakfast, lunches and dinners for everybody. And in the open time, she would do that. She also assisted my, my dad and, and his colleagues typing up appraisals, you know, things she just, she really always was looking for ways to increase the income and keep herself busy and I think, further herself. You know, she hoped to go to go to college when she was growing up. And of course she went I went to the same high school that she went to. All my aunts all went there. My grandmother, her mother went there. You know, like a, a legacy that went to Magnificat High School. And um and that is a college preparatory High school. So she had hopes and and plans of being the first in her family to get a a college degree. And even all the way up through high school graduation and into that summer, had planned to go to college. And unfortunately, her parents sat her down in that summer and said, We're sorry. The family needs the money. There's nothing we can do about it. In in that moment, you know, and classic that generation, you know, there were no tears. There was nothing that was just. Okay. Okay. My yeah. life is not going where I thought it was going. She then got a job at U.S. Steel <laughs> and she was uh, an executive secretary there. So she's very fast typist. Very good with dictation. Very bright. Wow. Just a naturally bright. Yeah. Person. Yeah. Yeah. Many women of her generation that had
1: that left turn thrust upon them, you know, my mom, same kind of thing, yeah. could have been the executive, could have been the State Department diplomat, could have been, but fate and life put them in the back seat, not the front seat.
0: That's right. You know, years later, as an adult, and I said, "Oh, mom, you've got to watch this terrific TV show. It's called Mad Men." And she said, oh, "I've already watched it." Now she said, "You know, Katie, that is how it was." Wow. That is what it was like working at US Steels is that you know it was just the women were running the office, the executives were doing the lunches and they did have bars in their offices. I'm like, oh my God, would <laughs> anybody work that way? Like I would be asleep after having yeah, that exactly. lunch, you know, to go get her parents. Yeah. Um how many kids? Just two. Me and my brother. We're pretty close together. Uh he's older, but only older by 15 months. Same, same. Yeah, I know. Two in a row. I think you know the thought there. And again, I think that's a generational thing. They're kind of like, okay, well, we're doing this. Let's just get it done. <laughs> it, you know, have the have the two babies at the same time so that it eases the burden on on the parents. Um, yeah. And, yeah. um and so yeah, we we pretty much progressed through life together. Um, with my brother having very much first child tendencies. <laughs> you know, the, the nervous parents transitioning, you know, translating into the apprehensive child, and then uh, you know, classic second child. They're like, "Ah, you'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of kid were you? What were your early interests? In? I am told that I was that very early on, I did not, I didn't want to take naps. And not that I fought against them, but just I didn't need them. And and I didn't want them. And mm. that my preference as a toddler was to maintain an awareness of everything around me. You know, that's something that it has been remarked about me for my whole life of just like you are so aware of everything you know and I think that works to my advantage in my job you know I'm just kind of like okay someone's moving a table someone's combining their, (laughs) you know I'm just like constantly aware situational awareness of what's happening and what
1: needs to happen yeah
0: yeah I just don't know what I've got not fear of missing out just this situational awareness just aware just taking it all in and 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 acknowledging it i had a lot of energy as a child not like again i'm told that it wasn't like spastic energy i was just an energetic human yeah. being so that in a lot of ways shaped my entire life because one of the things that the pediatrician suggested to my mom was putting me into some kind of a dance class or an acrobatics class to kind of harness that that energy and, and allow give me something to focus on that was a discipline action a discipline activity that's exactly what they did. Um when I was three I was enrolled in my first acrobatics and ballet classes and it just it just really stuck. I have foggy memories, but I, I I remember those memories. I remember loving the discipline, the and the the smell of the dressing room where you put your ballet slippers on, and and the feel of that smooth worn out wood bench. And I can picture it, to, it clearly in my mind what the studio looked like and what my my ballet teacher, uh, who taught me all the way through high school, same teacher, uh, you know what she looked like. She wore bracelets and and she wore a lot of makeup, and I thought she was so beautiful. And she, you know, she was a grown up, so she got to wear the ballet skirt, and I uh, got uh, to wear the tights and the leotard because I was the student. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And just after a few months, I had kind of outgrown those classes um, in terms of skill. So I was redirected out of acrobatics and into gymnastics. So, you know, acrobatics is more tumbling, headstands, backbends, things like that. Moved more into the realm of of gymnastics, so balance beam, bars, floor, vault, all that, and I stuck with that all the way through high school. And competed at a state level. I mean, I wasn't great, good enough to compete at state. (laughs) That's up. I qualified regularly for state. My role on the team was I was like the B, you know, like. Susan Kovach, she was the A. She was (laughs) she was gonna give you the great performance consistently. And I was kind of like, I'm gonna give you a pretty good, like I'm gonna contribute. I'm gonna give you performance. I'm gonna give you a solid, it's not gonna be earth shattering. You're not gonna remember it. I'm going to contribute at a high level to the success of this team. Yeah, and I really liked being in that position too. It was a good place for me to be. It didn't have a lot of pressure, but I was able to just like kind of, here's my skill, take it, <laughs> use it. Yeah. And that turned out to be, a, I don't know, it was like 12, 15 hours a week in the gym, two hours a week in the studio with ballet, which was just it was just heaven to me. You know, those activities were just heaven to me. I loved doing them. To this day, I love doing them. I say phrases that those coaches and teachers said to me, to my own students, to this oh, day. Wow. That was your main sports and active
1: focus. Were you
0: a kid? I mean, you're no. spending a lot of time in the gym. So that was kind of your, yeah, it was your pastime. So school, that's a really interesting question. I am a contact lens and glasses wearer, as you can yeah. see. <laughs> And I'm also a slow reader. My eyes move slowly across the page. And in school, when I was asked to read out loud, or when they would say, okay, everybody read this next page, and then we're going to discuss it. Or with my last name being a P, I was often in one of the back seats of the classroom. And it was difficult for me to see the chalkboard. And I didn't know that these things were contributing to this Feeling that I just hated school, yeah, and I didn't want to to have the learning because I felt so insecure about it. You know, if I had to read read something, I was not the person I am today. Where I said, "Hold on, hold on, I'm not done yet. I'm a slow reader." You know, they were kind of like moving on, and I'm like, "Oh, I haven't even had a chance." And it led to this, you know, to sort of an anxiety about learning and what learning is, and. I got when I got into high school, um, I did not, and I once I told you this college prep school, a lot of the, the girls in the school were in chem two and bio two and calculus and pre-calculus, and I was like in math. I mean, I was you know, I I was in Earth science. You know? like, <laughs> um, not that there's anything wrong with no. those. And, and and I loved them. And I loved it. I loved it because it was a pace and, and I could I could follow. Yeah. And it was an understanding. And then I I had this sort of watershed moment where I had two teachers that were really formative in in my high school career, Mrs. Bloom and Mrs. McMahon. And Mrs. McMahon was a history teacher and she painted history in a way that I had never had it. I, I never thought of these as stories. And, and I'm telling you, it changed my life. Like that is what I do to this day. That's my job. My You're job a storyteller for sure is to tell stories. And she gave that to me, you know, she, and she did not, it wasn't about like, we're going to grade you on these tests. It, she was, it was more kind of a, a blue book approach to learning. And that was really an amazing for me to go, Oh, wait a minute. It doesn't have to be multiple choice. Yeah. I can just write this out for you to show you that I do know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I did learn your lesson. I do understand how this ripple effect happened and, and so forth and so on. Um, and I really was the worst at multiple choice. Like I'm a, I can tell you, <laughs> I'm like... Well, what are the circumstances? I mean, you're overthinking the question. Yeah. I need context here, guys. This is not a black and white thing. Like, what if that was (laughs) really sad that day? Then they might choose this. You know, like you're you're not terrible at multiple choice. You're too smart for multiple choice. (laughs) It made me nuts. It made me nuts. So she she really changed that in a way that I didn't realize I was being shaped. And then this this other teacher, Mrs. Bloom, just on a I was just in the library not studying. I was in the library in the music library. Right. Listening to music. <laughs> and it was after school and no one was there. And I was coming out um, from this music cube and, and ran across her. And she was a, a, a lit teacher that I, I had. And um, which I, I did really well in lit to just something like, oh, these stories are awesome. Who yeah. knew this was written? And she, she just struck up a conversation with me. Well, what do you think you, you know, maybe what do you want to do? What where do you see your life going? And I was like, oh, this question that haunts me, and it's here every day. How can I, me at 15, know what me at 40 will want to do? I, I, I can't, even begin to guess what yeah. I would want to do. And in this mindset of you're in college preparatory, you're going to be going to college, you need to choose a major, you need to do yeah. You know, I said, Well, I, I just don't know, I, I don't know what I want to do. And I thought about my like, my love of, of gymnastics and and my coach, one of my coaches was in college learning to be a physical therapist at the time. And I thought, well, that might be interesting, sports medicine or physical therapy, something like that. And I told her, I, I just, I don't have the mind for the science. I don't have the mind for the math. I, I, I'm terrible at those things. And she said, you can do whatever you want to do. And I was like, boom, nobody ever said that. you know, and wow, I was like, wow, I could do whatever I want to do. Did you feel like the pressure of that question going away or totally going away, totally going away. And then, you know, she went on, she said, you don't, you don't even need to choose a major. You don't have to do that. You can just go and learn what you want to learn. And that's exactly what I did. (laughs) I'm like, okay, okay. Pressure. Now, of course, my parents were like, Oh, she's not going to be a lawyer. She's not going to be a doctor. (laughs) You know, this—all the the kids in the neighborhood are going to pre-pre med or pre-law, and you're going into liberal arts. You know. (laughs) (laughs) So, where did you go to college? I went to the University of Dayton, Catholic school. (laughs) Yeah,
1: there you go, all the way through. Tell me a bit about that journey. I mean, you knew you knew you liked gymnastics, and you knew you liked music. You loved writing stories, telling stories. So those are sort of compass needles starting to guide you. How did that pan out? Definitely,
0: I ultimately selected communication with a focus in management. So you get a communications degree, you get public relations, management, marketing. You know, it's all kind of under the umbrella of communications. And I chose management specifically small group management, which now I look back and I'm like, wow, that was like serendipitous. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I chose that because I had to choose something. Ultimately, push came to shove and you have to pick. So I I selected that. And I really loved my sociology classes and I loved my psychology classes. So I minored in both of those just because I loved the teachers and their approach. And I loved, like, I would go into one class and I'd go, oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'd go into another and I'd go, oh, well, I totally agree with that. (laughs) And it was really a pleasure for me to go on that journey of this non-pressured learning. And I was the only student that I'm aware of in any of my classes to opt for the blue book exams. People are like, oh, why would you want to write that as essay? And I'm like, why wouldn't you want to write an yeah. essay? Um, how great, what uh, what better way than to put it in your own words? Um, so I did that um, to, to, you know, kind of get back to the arts side of things. In high school, when I was a, uh, I think I was a junior in high school, and no, maybe my senior year, it was a, my, my senior year. I finally got up the courage to audition for one of the musicals in high school. I did nothing other than ballet and gymnastics until that moment. You were going to have a vocal part. You're going to sing. I tried out for. Uh, I was a junior, I think. Yeah, I was a junior. I tried. It was Annie, and I tried out for Annie. And I got in the chorus, not the kids chorus, it was the NYC chorus It was like one song, one dance. (laughs) But, you know, it was I was okay. It was the first time I like kind of opened my mouth and sang for real. Uh, Other than at church, (laughs) other than at church, other than, you know, in a choir, other than in my bedroom and in in a car singing along. um, Music was always really, really present in my life, always. And I didn't think I could sing. I just didn't think it's like, it was like learning. I just didn't think I could. And then I, and so I, I shied away from it. So I didn't want to fail, you know, it's fear of failure. Um, and which is crazy because in gymnastics, you're like, I don't know, I might fall. I, I just, you won't know until you try. And I just did not, I I didn't yeah, that one didn't bother
1: you, but the singing or the learning part did intimidate I you. I felt more exposed, I guess.
0: And yeah, maybe because I was starting out later, I had already learned like you start gymnastics when you're three. Falling down is like you don't even think about it. Yeah. Well, you're like, all right, I it felt <laughs> and dance is the same way. You start when you're young. You're like, oh, I, uh, I screwed it up. Yes, you're right. I did. Big deal. I'll do it better next time. But I just really did not have the. I didn't make a connection in my mind. These are the same skills.
1: Yeah, this is the same lesson that should carry over. Yeah. Yeah. It just,
0: I did not. I didn't
1: connect it. Yeah. Well, I think I think lots of us don't. We're you're not afraid on one thing, and the same kind of fear, you know, bamboozles you in a different arena. So. Yeah.
0: Completely. Yeah, and I got into college. I, I didn't want to make that same mistake. You know, I, I, I enjoyed those activities so much in high school in those last two years, and I just didn't want to make that mistake in college. Like avoid it and not get the benefit out of it. Yeah. So I, I just made a mindset change and I said, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to go out for the things I want to go out for and I'm not going to be afraid of it. And if I get things, great. And if I don't, that's fine. And so what, the first thing I did was uh, I tried out for the Flyerettes, the Dayton Flyerettes, which are which what the really cheerleading kind squad? Kind of like a dance team, drill team. It's a little, it's a mix of everything. It goes with the marching band element. Like the group before a marching band in a parade that's swirling the flags or whatever. Yeah, so there were some flags. It was mostly a dance team, but there were some pom-pom routines and flag routines, things like that. But because it had that dance component, I had the option of trying out for cheer, but I chose not to do that because I thought, well, a band has like 100 people in it, so I'll know more people. If I go out for the if I go out for the the flyer ads. and I was I was really glad I did that. That for very first day that I walked onto that campus, I met my my best friend Brenda, and to this day we talk two three times a week. She does not live in Columbus, but we talk, we text, and we're we're best friends. And we we ended up being roommates uh, for three of those
1: four years. College is often, I think, where we start to get a glimpse of what you know what avenues of earning a living or, you know, and what mix of maybe family and work and so forth we want or we think we're going to need. it, is that where your sense of what do I do with all this started to emerge?
0: Definitely. I um, I went out, uh, right after I went out the for the Flyerettes, I auditioned for the musical and and I got, you know, chorus part. And I was like, yeah, awesome. I'll just start working my way in. And I, I went out for the university dance ensemble, which is like a, a contemporary dance, modern dance. Uh, dance ensemble. And I got like two tiny, 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 tiny little parts, but I worked really hard and it's a small department. I got to know the, the um, instructor, not just a student instructor, but personal as a personal friend. Um, you know, when just kind of like, Hey, I'm an adult now, I could be friends with other adults, you know, that's kind of <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> after that first year, um, she reached out to me actually over the summer. And she said, I would really like you to be next year's student choreographer for the ensemble. Had you done any choreography up to that point? I had not done so yes and no. I choreographed my first my first dance in 3rd grade and it was performed for my classmates and it was the to the album of the littlest angel. And I had several friends that I choreographed these pieces for um, to tell the story along with the record. And then every summer from my fourth grade, probably up through ninth grade, maybe just eighth grade, every summer I would put on a show in my garage. And this was a show. I had a backstage, I had dressing rooms that were set up (laughs) under ladders. I used my recital costumes and repurposed them for costumes for the other kids in the neighborhood. And I produced and directed this show from top to bottom. My brother... My brother played his guitar while um, our my cousin sang along with him and did a song. I choreographed, uh, you know, dances for my next door neighbors, Kelly and Lynn um, sisters and the kind of big sister, little sister thing. I had the, uh, my brother's friend, friends, Mike and Rob Boom. They were twins. And I, I had them do a stand up routine. And so when I look back at that and I go, oh, my God, you were doing this from the get go. But so I'm fascinated by.
1: I choreographed is, you know, a two-word sentence. I, I can't even begin to understand. <laughs> yeah, how does that happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, the whole process of what imagining? Do you hear a piece of music and motions occur to you, or do you? Yeah, uh, you know, what's that interplay of the music or the story and the movement, and how does that percolate and evolve in, in your head. I'm also curious how much of the as you conceive and are creating a show, I imagine there's got to be something that's almost a visual, you can envision something or you even even audibly, you know the sound it ought to have
0: and it's almost a sense of how things ought to go together. It's very much a sense. For me, I didn't even realize that the whole world that everybody doesn't have those visions. I thought that was normal. And I thought it was normal until I was in my 20s, when it dawned on me that people don't hear music and see dances. Like, no, I'm like, really? You <laughs> well, I do when I do when I'm watching your show, but to, you know, just <laughs> play the music and it, it does not happen in my little brain. Yeah. So it, it kind of was um, always, uh, always there. Inborn or in those really young, young years in third grade, fourth grade, a lot of what I was creating was very much based on what I was observing and being aware of in the preparation for those recitals that I was participating in. So I was that aware baby (laughs) that I was. I was acknowledging that I was observing the process of putting a recital together. So you were kind
1: of seeing the whole thing while 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 ostensibly just there to do your part.
0: Yeah, and 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 I was taking note of it, and it was just kind yeah. of building up in my mind. And I think that that had something that that certainly informed how I approached those things as a child. I have no idea where this cabaret garage show idea came from. I can only guess that maybe I saw a Carol Burnett show. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. You know, but it, that, but it
1: seemed. I can do that too. Or that would be fun. Let's do it. That just occurred to you. I'm
0: going to do a show. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm, I'm, what other people we call like, I'm, I'm a 100% person. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing it halfway. I'm either not doing it or I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. I can't tell. Yeah, so I, I I think that you know I don't know where, where that idea came up to have the variety, but there was Carol Burnett, you know what Donny Television at the time had a lot of variety shows. Merv Griffin had yeah. that, so I think I probably just said I could do that. <laughs> in The neighborhood, uh, I'm still I'm still amazed. Yeah, but when you're starting to you know kind of look at putting a full show together on a professional scale, or even as a student choreographer back in in those days typically I start with what is the story I want to tell. And sometimes the story that I want to, tell, a lot of times the story I want to tell is the story that's being told in the lyrics of the song. At least when I'm doing a, a kind of a one-off, what I would call like a one-off piece, standalone piece that you would, might see in the sketch show. I'm listening to those lyrics, listening to that music and saying, this is what the song is supposed to be about. And I'm led to understand from uh, people around me and and guests at the show that they're like, I didn't even know that's what that song was about. So I think that there's a a part of me that kind of relied on that history teacher and that literature teacher kind of embedding in me the stories, the stories, the stories. Look for the story. Look for the humanness in this moment, And tell that, that's what's interesting. And that is really what speaks to me when I'm choreographing. What's the part that we all feel? We've all been there. There's nothing unique about that. We all share that at a base level. We share those feelings. And so I try to get across. I look for the human in the story. I don't look for the superhero. I like to look for the human. So it's a little bit... It's like the untold stories of history, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> God, people are so amazing. Like, people are amazing to me. Everyday, regular people. And we talk to them about who they are and what their life is like. And you're like, wow, you're incredible. And I'm just in constant awe of how amazing the people on this earth are. They're incredible. And I love their stories and their stories. I would tell every one of them if I could, you know, but you got to also tailor that with like, what's going to sell a ticket. What's <laughs> sell a ticket? Yeah. You can't just, I mean, maybe later in my career, I'll have made such a, a name for myself that people would be willing to see something they didn't know. But right now it's all like, you got to keep it in a pretty tight frame. Cause you have to remember that, that money side of things and being able to sell that ticket. But it starts for me in that way, at least for for how I'm I'm doing this at Shadowbox, is knowing all of these stories. So, like the the, the no return show that that I know you you saw recently. That's just what I was going to ask you about because yeah. this is
1: this is uh the, it's the story of Bonnie and Clyde, like you said, told from the very human these not the band not the band it's not the robberies but the two human beings with all the feelings, and emotions. But Shadowbox is a fabulous company, but that was a very different piece than many. You, I mean, you had, and I, I want to ask you how all the different ideas of that came in. You recreated, you recreated, well, you used some historic film clips of the real Bonnie and Clyde, and you had some of the performers very closely mimic in dress and makeup, and you even found an old car. You recreated some of the historic scenes, and it was much more a snapshot scene, Uh, you know, dots on a string leading to their final moment. Did
0: you have a sense of that at the beginning and then you're filling in the pieces or how does that happen? The original idea to, to have a show dedicated just to that couple and their story actually came from, I was, I did a show prior to that called desire. And that show I took, I don't know, I think it was like 15, 18, something like that. Characters that were from literature and, The idea here was to uh, have this through line be these two college professors that are late at night at work and they have their own story, you know, like that. I wasn't telling that Jimmy was another another cast member. Yeah. Yeah. Doing his magic of writing them their story. But the vehicle is what I call the vehicle to the dance was that's one professor's grading papers. And the question that he had posed to his students is who are the greatest? What's the greatest love love stories told in literature of all time and why? So he's grading these papers and is like picking one up and going, oh, yeah, well, here's surprise, surprise. Half of them chose Romeo and Juliet and they have their little interaction of the professors. And then we go over into like Romeo the other professors like, oh, I love Romeo and Juliet. It's so tragic. And then we go over and I show this part of the Romeo and Juliet story, not the whole story, just one part of it. Mm-hmm. When I was doing the research for that show. So before that show ever came to fruition, I had a very long list of. My favorites. What is considered the most famous? Blah blah blah, and it ranged. It was famous. The most famous couples in history. A lot of them came from literature, but not all. And Bonnie and Clyde was on that list. And so then I go in and I do my research, and I I just go in and read the stories and I read blogs and what people say. And I read essays that students have written that are online that I'm able to dig up and find out, you know, what angle they are, they tell the story from and and what their perception is of the story or how it applies to today or, you know, whatever lessons are learned from it. So tons and tons and tons of research in that research, I, I, picked out all the real people because <laughs> I, <had, laughs> I had enough literature and you know, I needed to make it about literature to get this vehicle to work properly. To get the grading papers device. Yeah, exactly. So I had to kind of eliminate eliminate that aspect of it. But at the same time, when I was reading their story, I I even said to my colleagues, I said to Jimmy, this story needs to be told. It's it's an unbelievable. Well, what sources were you able to
1: find on uh, Bonnie and Clyde that got deeper than the You know, the bandit, vicious bandit story.
0: First of all, I read their diaries. There's a a wealth of information out there from people in that family, not specifically. You know, Clyde didn't keep a diary that that we know of. Um, Bonnie did keep a diary and she did write a, a lot of poetry. And a lot of that poetry has to do with their their life. So I read those and also Blanche kept a diary and she also wrote memoirs. That's the girlfriend of the fellow gangster. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Clyde's brother Buck's girlfriend. And then Clyde's mother also uh, wrote sort of half half stories like she started writing and then decided not to. And she wasn't educated. You know, I don't think she felt she could or or didn't have time or whatever. But there were definitely pieces there that. helped me kind of frame the reality. And when I'm doing my research, I'm also looking at, well, what what era are we talking about here? Okay, like 1933. Okay. And where were they? Texas. Okay. Well let me look at what was happening in Texas in 1933. And so that led me down this path of like these people. And I had no idea. Like and I got a a a PBS biography on the Dust Bowl. And I watched that because it was the same time in the same place. And I was like, oh my God. I can't even imagine those people living that way. And these kids were born in it and lived through it. Like it was decades long. It wasn't like this little winter storm, you know, it was like a for real thing, you know? And then I pulled pictures off the internet of like this dust bowl thing and real faces of real people and families standing in front of their real houses in these cars that were all parked on the roads and things. And it started Forming in my mind of like, okay, I'm, I think I I need the story to be dusty. It needs to be dusty. It needs to be gritty, because that changes you. That's the era they were in, and that's the personalities they. Yes, it, it, it hardens you yeah. in so many ways to have a, a, such a harsh environment and be brought up in that harsh mm-hmm. environment, and that really spoke to me. I'm like, oh God, that's so apropos. I mean, just the the situations that we have in, in, in our current society. And you, you know, you're kind of like, Oh my God, this, how are they, how are they getting by? How are they doing? Well, that's just a few years after the depression on top of everything else. Yeah. It's just the weight of it. Yeah. It really was speaking to me. And so I I did all that kind of bit of research and David Whitehouse is our our designer of video um, along with uh, his colleague, Zach Tarantelli. And they're super, super creative and, we, you know, I kind of use video to, to to get costumes changed. I mean, honestly, that's <laughs> kind of the point. Ah. It's super entertaining, but it allows us to get the costumes changed backstage for the next thing in our quick fire shows. And I really wanted to try to incorporate the video into the show, almost as a as a character itself. You know, I I really wanted it to to be ever present in the show, to transport the audience into that, into that location, into that space and time. Yeah, it worked. So that, that was kind of another aspect of it and collaborating with, with David and Zach on, you know, how, how we could bring my, my sort of my storyboards for video, which are, I don't know. I say, can this even be done? You know, I I don't know. I'm not, I don't have that skill, um, but being able to, to storyboard and say, this is what I think would be really cool if we could do it and then letting them, figure out how to how to make it so so beautiful and so artistic. All this research over and over and over again. Clyde loves cars. Clyde loves cars. Clyde loves cars. And he loved them because his father collected metal from cars and sold it for a while. And so he He was a scrap guy. He knew cars from the time he could see it. (laughs) So of course, he loved it. And, and I think he loved that fast car because I think he felt he could get away and you can't escape yourself and that is and that's part that's the other of, part of the story yeah. that's part of the story that i wanted to tell I'm like no matter where you go in that fast car man you're not getting out you can't get away from this yeah yeah
1: well the video i felt the videos worked fabulously i mean you had the the historical i mean real footage but the other thing that was amazing is you you guys shot you guys shot with modern day video equipment fresh scenes that were kind of replicas of the historic one And David and company figured out how to basically dirty them up. So they they also looked like they had been shot in
0: 1930. Yeah. That was amazing. Brilliant job. And then, you know, a lot of people say that the pandemic was a blessing in disguise in some ways, and that definitely was true with the show. It did because we weren't in production at the theater. It did open up some time for us to be able to do these um, location video shoots, which normally we just don't have that kind of time. My my husband, who unfortunately for him has to listen to all of my ramblings on all of the shows, <laughs> <Mom>. <laughs> and he you know he has to go on this this journey whether he wants to or not and hear me. The next morning, go, oh, I I had this dream last night and I think I could get this into the show. What do you think? You know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, he actually had the idea of finding a car. Um, Now, that wasn't like, let's find a car and do video of it. Initially, it was just kind of like maybe we could find a car and use it somehow. And he's a car guy and a a motorsports guy. So he reached out to a couple of people who have these antique car clubs and made a connection with this this individual who had this car which is not exactly the car but is really close it was close and this gentleman small world such a small world his son has been doing our security monitoring for 20 years wow <laughs> and we didn't even know it you know but he had this car and steve and i my husband steve and i uh, drove out to delaware where he keeps it in a in a storage area and we saw the car and of course the two guys were t- 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 cars 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 and i'm just looking at that car and and i'm just like God, oh, this would be so great if i could choreograph a dance about the car with the. I'm in the car and choreograph it so that they could come here and dance around the car. And yeah. then I'll have them dance that same dance live with a box. I'm like, that's kind of where the whole car thing kind of. And then, then I thought, okay, the car has to be a character in the show. It's important. So that was sort of where that, that started. And then I, I knew that I wanted to do that. And then I was like, okay, well, we looked around, scouted around spaces. Where can we do this shoot? I'll tell you, it's harder to find than you would think. You got to go somewhere where there's no stoplights, no stop no, signs. no telephone lines. Yeah, no, no um, wires. Yeah, and kind of an, oh, not not Midwest. We're talking about Texas, so I'm looking yeah. for farmland, flatland, and that was really hard to find. But we lucked out that this this man who who had the car had a, a friend who has this open space in this nice big house. The other element that I was looking for is if I could combine these two shoots for this car. The other thing I really wanted to do was have the actors the dancers get away through the through the creek. Yeah, that 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 really happened. They really were shot at they really did escape through a creek. They really yeah. were shot at while they were escaping through the creek. <laughs> I did not make that up. That's real. <laughs> and I wanted to have them escape through this creek. Cool. Uh, so I was looking and I'm like, oh, these creeks are muddy and they're slimy and they're gross. And I don't want to put the dancers down in this muck. And this man with the car said, well, I've, I've got this, this friend. He has this property. He's got a long, narrow pond in the front. You might be able to use that for your creek maybe or your water scenes if you want to do that. Um, And so we went out and we toured this property. And this, you know, so generous man is a beautiful property. This pond that we used is like a, basically, it's a swimming pond. It's even treated with chlorine. It's it's beautiful. And they had a whole pool house that was like kind of across from that. Uh, And this property that he had had cornfields on either side um, that were farmed, and then this really big back area that had trees and stuff. And so we were able to, I was able to storyboard all of the outdoor shots that I wanted to get just on that one property. And he was so gracious, like, oh, yeah, we'll use this. You can use that pool house. You can have, you you know, use my golf cart to to transport your, your stuff around. So <laughs> we spent two days, um, you know, basically dawn to dusk out there on location, you know, get with costumes and all that, but we had this beautiful pool house to use as our as our staging space, and um, we shot all that footage out there. And then they were able to then take that and and dirty it up and yeah. make it um, make it look like we were back in 1930. So let let's
1: shift gears a little bit because you you know Shadowbox, the company that you choreograph et cetera et cetera for, and many other things for, you guys always have multiple multiple shows per week and multiple shows in production. So as we sit here today talking, how many shows are on stage? How many different shows are currently on stage in production? How many are in in your head? <laughs> and in what stage, you know, phase one, phase two? Yeah, where are they? How many of these can you juggle in your mind at the same time?
0: Yeah, quite quite a few. Uh, we have two shows that are up and running right now. One is our Christmas sketch comedy show, which is called Holiday Hoopla. And the other one is our Christmas musical, Not So Silent Night. So those two are up and and running. I'm performing in one of them. I choreographed both of them. I do the staging as well. So there's a little bit of a, a differentiator, differentiator there. Um, typically, your, your director is going to do the blocking and, and the staging and stuff. This is here and that prop is there. And Yeah, I actually do that part of the job because it's so part and parcel to choreography. It just, it, it, you know, it just, and then, you know, Julie does does the producing. She's the producing director. So she's able to kind of see a package that I'm putting together at a much more complete package she can then do her magic and really breathe life in into those into those tell me a little more what the producer does is it she edits the sketches you know she's she's great she's hilarious and she's a a wonderful writer herself so when we're we're doing brand new material and sketches we're obviously giving her the best that we can give and jimmy as well with the scripts and she can just she kind of looks at it and says I think the end needs to be this. We need to add this. This section just feels like it's dragging on too long. So that's a big part of what she does yeah. in the sketch. So sort of the fine honing and shaping. Yeah, right? yeah, she's kind of, she's sculpting that. Yeah, that piece, polishing it for the sketches. She also has a great ear for music. She um, she guides the band. They learn the music. They learn it according to the recording. They make whatever modifications they need to make for their instruments. Cause you know, not only- you're a different ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. So they make those changes to the best of their ability. And then she can kind of come in and go, you know, we really need the keyboards to be more present here or that, that patch isn't exactly right. Can you give me something that's got a little bit more dirt to it? It's a little more grungy or whatever. So she's kind of hearing the music the way she wants to hear it yeah. in her mind. And she's bringing that up in. So she's working with the musicians and the audio guy, the audio designer to do that. She also is looking at the lights overall and helping a, the lighting designer is amazingly talented. Alana Easley is her name and she's incredibly creative and just has a beautiful eye. And generally, Julie says, "Alana, the lights look great. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, she's like, yeah, I... I. That percussion player is really given a great performance. I want to get more light on that person. Yeah. Or, you know, I feel like this, the the lights are just too bright. I'm not capturing the feeling I want to I want I want to get here. So she collaborates with all those people. She does the same thing with costumes. So she really put ties all the ribbons together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's she's really truly brilliant at that. And she has a wonderful trust of us. And she lets us lobby for our departments and our pieces and fight for them if we feel we really want to, you know, no, don't cut this. I can make it better. Give me, you know, she's like, all right, you have till tomorrow. You know, it's, it's very, it's very, really great collaborative experience. Yeah. How long have you been with the company? 28 years. They're going to take you out with your boots on. I don't know. We'll see right now. We're we're holding steady and and being real creative and, and loving it. I don't know that I'll, I'll be there when I'm 70, you know, we'll, <laughs> I don't know, Well, we'll see where life takes us and yeah. you know, where, where, what the future holds. I don't know. I try not to outguess it. You know, I'm just kind of like I'm pretty happy. We're pretty yeah. happy. So we're, we'll stay the course for, for now, but yeah, back to the, the shows we have that the two Christmas shows, we're in final dress for Climax, which is our next sketch show opening in January. So we've already done two of the four dress rehearsals that we're we're doing for that. We do have a little bit of a very limited run bring back of No Return. So I have been doing what I call memory runs of that show since you just kind of keep it fresh. You know, every every three weeks we run that show. We're going to attempt to do it today. We'll see if the road will let us full up dress run. No costumes, because the costumes okay. require a lot of specialty cleaning, because they're all made to, yeah. But the, the dancers will go through everything today. And tech, so they don't lose their timing, lights, the timing, the band will be there, all of that. No hair, no makeup, no costumes. Assuming, but everything assuming everybody can get through their snowy streets we have around. Exactly. Assuming we can get there, right. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to bring that back in January or just for 10 shows. It's very limited. We have just finished. I've just finished conceptualizing the choreography and staging for our musical working title. Take on me. That will not be the, the end title. That's just the working title of the show. Sort of set in the eighties. And so it's a little bit of a spin off the title of that song from Aha: take on me. So that original work is, is moving forward. It is cast um, so I kind of I can't really do my thing until I know what I'm working with so we had to get a cast early so I have the time yeah. to to choreograph all that so I've got a pretty good I've got a pretty nice picture up here of of where I want to head with the dances in that show but it's a, it's a traditional style musical so it's a little bit of a lighter lift for me musical theater is a by no means is it easy but it's a little bit of choreographically i'm just telling that moment in time yeah We're just telling a full story so that's up here and we are starting to conceptualize the next sketch show which opens i think in like i don't know late april early may something somewhere around there uh that one's called body language so the songs have been selected for that so my mind is already working on on that what what are those dances what could those dances be and the rest of our season, uh, I'm not looking at the the fall show at all yet. We don't have materials finalized for that, so that's uh, that'll just come on online when it does, according to the timeline. And then we do have um, a, another limited run of our Flower Power show, and then we're going to be doing the Led Zeppelin Queen tribute show in the fall with our collaboration with Pro Musica, and those are those are already choreographed. So I don't have to worry about that. I got some replacements to do, and of course. <laughs> We fine tune, you know, sometimes we yeah. will go back and I look at that and I go, oh, I, I really want to re-choreograph it. it. Only in Columbus
1: do you, do you have the da- dance plus sketch comedy troupe on stage with chamber
0: musicians. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. it's a wonderful combination. It is a beautiful combination. Long-term I have been for a couple of years, I've been working on a retelling of Sleepy Hollow, oh. Washington Irving's short story. I have, you know, I have 14, 15 drafts of it, um, because that's kind of my process is to just read it and reread it and go, how could I tell the story? Where What's interesting here? What What is the interesting story? What is the story to be told? Yeah, what is the, What's the human part here? Which character is the one I want to focus on? Do I want to add any twists? Like it's, you know, the way that the story is told, it's just like kind of a cautionary tale. And, you know, like, and then he disappeared the end. You know, it's very, to me, it feels very sort of unfinished. And so I am compelled to finish it. Can't wait to see how you do that. The way I think it actually happened. You know, I'm, I want to tell it the way I think it actually happened if it were to be a real story. Um, So I'm a long way down the road on that, on that show. There's no guarantee that that will ever get off the paper and onto the stage. Yeah, but it can't get onto the stage if it doesn't get framed on the. Board. If we don't think it. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So I have probably I don't know maybe 50, 60 songs selected and kind of tied up and matched to the moments. Part of my process is uh, it's what I call my my moments worksheet, and I sort of lay out these are the these are the bullet points. This is what's important to me. Like the dots in your outline. Yeah. And this is what I think I can tell through dance. This, I cannot tell through dance this part here. I cannot tell it through dance easily. And clearly that's where Jimmy comes in. He looks at my moments. We talk and I say, I got to get from here to here. And here's the context. Uh, yeah. And then he will get those scenes in there and then go, did we get there? Are we there? Or he'll go, well, I was looking at this and it got me to thinking, what do you think about this? And then that can utterly change. Change. Yeah where I, where I head, but I give him something that he can kind of hang his hat on. Yeah. And then we go back and forth. And and, and then later in, in the process, when we're a little bit further down the line, we bring the rest of the, the artistic development team in. And, and then I say, all right, here's, here's what I think it could be. Here's the outline. Here's the sound. Here's the samples of the music I'm, I'm going towards. Cause you know, I do try to Keep the sound co- somewhat consistent. Yep, in the shows, um, and not that the music is all of the same era or the same type, but it really isn't jarring. And that's my goal is to not be like all of a sudden there's an ACDC song in here when you're, you know you're floating along a lazy river and ACDC dc pops in. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Or so you're I are doing all AC/DC,
0: and suddenly it's classical strings. It's exactly. So <laughs> I, I try to kind of get it all in the same realm, so to speak. So. There, the the artistic development team is fully aware that I'm I'm pushing ahead on this. My assistant choreographer um, Nicholas Wilson, who is a superstar on our stage, yeah, um, he is. uh, He is. He has laid eyes on it, and I've asked him, you know, give me give me your thoughts at this point. Where do you think it could go, Um, so that I can get some feedback from him as well as bring him along in his journey. Uh, And so, you know, next generation of of show shadow box can live on so that's kind of where that is for me i have a whole folder here on my desktop that's titled show ideas and it's just a running list of this isn't a story that touches me that i think is interesting that i feel i can tell whether or not an audience would like it could it sell a ticket all that i don't know it doesn't matter what matters now is, is it inspiring? Do I love it? You know, again, again years, years and years ago, I was like, oh, I could totally tell the story of the Thorn Birds. Oh, totally. <laughs> I love it. But is this really the era we want to be telling that story? Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> like, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's things like that where I just uh, kind of keep this running idea. So I've got, you know, I'd say one, two, three, four five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, about 10 shows in my
1: head right now. Wow. So I've kept you a good long time in this conversation and I've at least been fascinated to get a clearer sense of how a mind like yours works to make this magic happen (laughs) that I see on stage. My final question is really about that younger generation that you were talking about, because you've got younger members of the cast in, in the company at Shadowbox and you run youth workshops. And I'm curious what top three bits of advice you give to the Katie Seneca at age eight or nine or 10 who comes to one of your classes or your shows and maybe as lost, insecure, whatever, as we all were when we were nine or 10. What What's your advice to the youngster who feels something but
0: doesn't know what to do with it? It's all one skill. That's the first thing I would say. It's all one skill. It's just applied in different ways. And what's that one skill? whatever skill you have, right? Your books, you're great at math. You're great at science. You're, you're great at, at painting, whatever it is. You're, you're good at is applicable to every single thing you do in life. It's the same skill. It's the same thing. You just have to filter, put a filter on your lens and take what you know and apply it. And you don't have to have the answers. They'll just come. They really will. The road will reveal itself to you. You don't need to stress about where is it going. Just start walking. I promise it's going to reveal itself. You're not going to be out to see if you take that one thing and just start applying it every step of the way. And you'll whittle down what you hate and what you love. You'll know. You'll know when you know. And you won't know until you don't until, you know, so you, you, you can't don't waste your time stressing over not knowing, don't you know, like all the time I was just like, Oh, God, pulling out my hair, what am I going to do for a living? Wasted, just, just do what you do and, and apply it and singing, dancing, acting, directing. It's all the same skill. If you want to hone it, hone it. If it doesn't speak to you, move on and find out what does. So that would be the first thing for, for burgeoning artists, for sure. The second thing is, you know, for just a general younger generation, I, I would say, if you can just put yourself in a mindset of take away the fear. Don't be afraid. Yeah, you're going to fail. Just know it. You only grow from failing. You don't grow from success. You grow from failure. That's where you learn your lessons. That's how you learn your lessons. You don't balance a bike the first time you ride it. You fall. And that's how you learn how to balance the bike. There's no textbook on, well, sit in your chair and practice this. And then when you get on the bike, it's going to be perfect. It just isn't. You're going to fall. Embrace it. Lean into the discomfort. And no, and we're all there. We all do it. So go for it. Just go for it. Don't be afraid of the failure. So that, I think, would be really you know, that's a big thing we teach, big thing we teach is just go for it. Um, And then the last thing that I would say is be all in. And whatever you do, be, be all in, be in your moment and be all in. Even if being all in in that moment is just listening to someone who's struggling. Be 100% in that moment for, for others. This journey, it's not about you. (laughs) It's about them. It's what gift you have in that moment that you can give in whatever way you can give it and give it fully, give it a hundred percent out, give it, give it away. Cause it will cost just going to come back to you. So give it away and let it come back, give it away and let it come back. Don't keep those inside. Don't keep your light inside. Let it shine. Let it get out there. Let people see it. And that doesn't mean like, look at me, look at me. I mean, in a gen in a genuine, let yourself have the freedom to share all of your amazing gifts to the world. Share them. The world needs needs you. <laughs> it needs your skill. It needs your gift. So give it. It needs your
1: light. Uh, you, you bring a lot of light uh, in so many ways to so many people through your work on the stage. And I'm sure through this conversation as well to the folks that well, thank you. <laughs> listen to this podcast. So thanks again, Katie, for talking My with pleasure. us this morning. I'll see you on stage shortly.
0: Okay. Yeah. right. <laughs> I'll see you in the theater.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.